Looking for a gift that won't clutter the shelf and collect dust? A gift subscription to the Bible as Literature podcast offers wisdom that will challenge and enrich the lives of those you love in 2016. Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is the answer to every human conflict and how is this answer sabotaged by human wisdom? What does it mean in biblical terms to be called by God? How does St. Paul use praise as a tool of judgment against the church in Roman Corinth? This Christmas Eve, Richard and I celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ with the first in a series of episodes covering 1 Corinthians. May it always be pleasant for you to remember upon Christmas Day the one who made lame beggars walk and blind men see, and by your remembering... May the poor always have good news brought to them. A very Merry Christmas to you. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 101 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are about to embark on an adventure. We're going to tackle 1 Corinthians this year. We're very excited to tackle this book because so much of the showdown between the biblical tradition and Hellenism, between the biblical tradition and religiosity, comes to a head in 1 Corinthians. You know, one of the things that Hellenistic philosophy does, or at least what it seems like Paul's opponents really believe, they take human nature as a virtue. And the thing about the biblical tradition is that it confronts human nature. In the Hellenistic traditions, we try to have our appetites, but try to keep them under control with our mind, with our thinking, with our intellect. And so it heightens the natural ability for the human intellect. And what Paul is trying to say is that it takes an entirely new way of thinking, an entirely new way of acting, an entirely new way even of desiring. One of the overarching messages of Paul's drumbeat in 1 Corinthians, and it's a pastoral drumbeat, it's not a theological drumbeat, and he keeps pounding this again and again and again in the way that he manages conflict in the church. He is saying repeatedly that because the human mind is fleshly because it is passing away. Everything it architects follows the pattern of biology, which is condemned to conflict because it's rooted once again in what's best for the ego. Paul doesn't use the word ego, but this is the function that we're talking about. And so in all of his pastoral examples throughout the letter, his solution to every problem is self-defeat, which makes no sense to a rational Greek thinker. It makes no sense to a rational thinker in any age. All rational thinkers deep down inside are Hellenists in the sense that they are reasoning out a system of thought that suits them. That's why I prefer Aristotle to Plato 
because Aristotle, in a way, was more in the vein of the biblical tradition because he was interested in understanding what actually is there as opposed to what he imagines should be there. I think the difference between the biblical tradition and the Platonic tradition specifically is, you know, we have in the biblical tradition, and we've talked about this many times, God has put eternity in man's heart, but he cannot grasp it. Whereas the Platonic tradition is God has put eternity in man's heart, period. And that he cannot grasp it. That shortcoming, that eternal inability for the human being to understand what is eternal, that's the difference. In Platonic thinking, the human being can eventually advance to a level where he can grasp the eternal. In the biblical tradition, the human being cannot grasp it, and it must be taught to him from the outside. It cannot come from the inside. It must be taught, it must be imposed, and it must disrupt the human being if the human being is going to act correctly. If you then, in the tradition of Platonic philosophy, which we're using as a very broad category because it encompasses a whole range of schools and ideologies and theologies, but if you fall into that general category and you imagine that you can fit the whole wide ocean into the little thimble that is your brain and your experience and your perspective, which is temporary on top of being infinitely small and irrelevant, if you think you can figure it out, you're eventually going to impose a grossly oversimplified and tyrannical view of reality on reality. And this is what leads to suffering. Scripture keeps saying, your neighbor is different than you. Deal with it. But the philosopher keeps saying, this is what your neighbor should be. Impose it. Should. Should is the operative word here. It's a big problem. Because once you say should, then you are just like the circumcision party in Galatians. You are telling other people what they should or should not be. Once you go down that path, you're sitting on God's chair. You're claiming a grasp of reality that you cannot actually grasp. You cannot grasp it. You can't hold it together. If you can't hold together, how can you sense the eternal values, virtues that other human beings are supposed to act out in the way that you imagine? It can't happen. It can't work. And this seems like the battle that Paul is choosing to fight. Because he cares ultimately about the only thing that matters, which is kinonia, fellowship. The purpose of the church, of any community, but in the New Testament, in this example, of the very sinful church that Paul is addressing, its purpose as community, if it is gathered by God's teaching, is fellowship. That's it. And not inward fellowship, fellowship in general. So if fellowship in general is the purpose of everything, according to the Pauline school, what possibly could you engineer in your humanly wise brain that is of any value if it causes conflict and separation and division? This is something that is so explosive to preach in a religious context because modern religion is imperialistic. It takes its roots from the earliest foundations of religion which link belief and ritual to the power of the state. And the state functions in order to impose its order, which is why every national ideology functionally embraces the concept of a philosopher king. Because all a philosopher tyrant is, is a moralizer who sets out a code for what he thinks the world should look like 
And for any state, it really doesn't matter what that morality is. You just need a morality in order to maintain control. And so for Paul to come in and say, ah, all that matters is love, I mean, he's worse than a hippie in the eyes of the early church. So let's dive into the letter and see where we go. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So right away in the opening, Paul is laying the groundwork. I am not coming here to speak as Paul. I am being grabbed by the neck by the will of God and being put in place because he's not just their Lord, he's our Lord. He is the Lord of all creation. So open your ears and close your mouth because what comes next is not up for a vote and it is not optional. So when he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and then he has these qualifiers, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, in every place call in the name of the Lord. Is he saying that I'm writing to the church and since I'm writing to the church, I know you guys are all doing this stuff. I know you guys are all sanctified. Or is he saying, by the way, the ones I'm writing to, whoever happens to be listening to this, I'm writing to a particular subset of those people. And that subset are the ones who are sanctified, who are saints, and who call in the name of the Lord. The point I'm making is that just because one believes one is part of the church may not be enough. You actually have to be sanctified, which means made holy by Christ Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus, being the Messiah who was crucified, has to have sanctified you. Saints by calling, meaning that you did not make yourself sanctified, but that it was Christ Jesus who sanctified you. And we know this is the case if you are in every place calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is implicit here a definition of what is the church. A lot of people like to say, we're the church, we're the church, we're the church, we're the church. Paul in verse 2 is already defining what it is to be the church. That you are calling on our Lord Jesus Christ in every place. If you're not, you are not church. And calling on him is linked to the pronunciation of the teaching. To call on the name of the Lord is to call with the Psalter on your lips. You understand what I'm saying? And at the same time, you are saints not by choice or by eschesis or by reason, because the Corinthians, you know, they fancy themselves theologians. They fancy themselves filled with the Spirit, which is a kind of self-made deification, which again takes us back to where we started with Hellenism. And he hits them hard with respect to Hellenism and paganism later on when he talks about meat offered to idols. But the point is that you are called. It's the call. The same text that you are announcing is being read aloud to you in the congregation. And the church is the body politic of that teaching, not the institution that claims that teaching. It's the body politic with invisible borders that responds to the call. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The classic grace and peace from Paul. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Here he's already beginning the very difficult, very lengthy hazing that is 1 Corinthians. Because just after he talked about grace and peace, which is, as I said, the classic framework, the day you're given a chance and the day you die, it's the path in between those two points. And then he comes back right again in verse 4 and gives thanks for the day of grace because they need it in Roman Corinth. He's thankful because you're screwing up And it's good news that it's still the day of grace, that you're still on the path. We have a link here because we have those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus in verse 2 and the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus in verse 4. It's a grace that you have been sanctified. You did not do anything to be sanctified. It was given to you. You were given a gift, grace of sanctification by Christ Jesus, meaning by his sacrifice. When you put in the fly in the ointment of Christ Jesus, it's not one that makes you feel fuzzy and glowy inside. It's one that leads to crucifixion. Remember, this is Paul who said explicitly that you overwhelm people. You heap coals on their head with kindness. It's very difficult for American Christians or Western Christians generally, but especially American Christians, because our culture is built on the false paradigm of praise. Everybody gets a pat on the back and an applause at the basketball game, whether they score a point or not, which I consider to be a sin, because all you're doing is screwing your kids up, because then they're going to get into the real world and think that everything is fine when everything is not fine. So in that setting where we praise everyone for everything, irrespective of what's actually happening on the ground, it's impossible for us to catch the nuance that when an authority figure heaps praise when he's scolding, he's actually shaming you. People hear this letter and they put it on Hallmark cards as though Paul is encouraging you that in everything you were enriched in him and all speech and knowledge. He's going to spend the rest of the letter ridiculing them for their belief in their own knowledge and for their false words. And for undermining this grace of sanctification that was given to them. He is pouring it on thick. I cannot stress this enough. The only time you can be sure that things are okay when you're hearing scripture is when scripture is explicitly condemning you. If it's not explicitly condemning you, it's cleverly shaming you. And the only time it gives a word of encouragement is after it's explicitly condemned you and cleverly shamed you. And the encouragement is like Bright Week. It's just a little word of encouragement on the tail end of the lengthy... Lenten period. You must be very grateful to have a house to live in and have food on the table and clothes in the closet and a bed to sleep on. So why has the trash not been taken out yet? (laughs) Exactly. You know, this is the setup that Paul is providing. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. He sounds like he does in Galatians. I brought this to you. You accepted it, you and Peter and James and the whole gang. So why do I have to write a letter to you again? What's wrong? That's the thing. If Paul sends you a letter, it's bad news. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is another slap because we know 
that the intellectuals in the church in Roman Corinth already think they're full of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and they're walking around as though they're already raised and this is really irritating to Paul and he gets into this later. Well, I mean, I'm assuming that if you have all the intellect and all the grace and all the knowledge that you need, you should no longer be messing anything up. You should pretty much have it down, right? That's what happens when my kids get bad grades on tests. I thought you had all the time in the world to do all this other stuff. You're acting like you had more than enough time to study. What happened on the test? Now, verse 8 is Paul now identifying the church with Jacob Israel because he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7 and then in verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning we know you're full of yourself. We know it's all vain talk in the church. We know you're self-righteous. We know all of the things about which you're going to get an earful from me. But still, even so, God can make the stink that is your kinonia into something beautiful the same way he did for Israel. Because he is God and he is merciful. In verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called. He mentions that they're called again. He's reminding them. This isn't about you. This is about the recitation of the sacred text. Called, you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And here he is explicitly saying that the call is to kinonia. That's what it is. There's nothing beyond that. When you receive a vocation, you believe that it's your vocation, that it belongs to you. My vocation means what I received but it forgets the giver. And it's the trustworthy God. God is faithful. I'm going to say trustworthy. God is trustworthy through whom you were called into fellowship. So if you're lacking anything, it can't be God's fault. God's trustworthy. He gives you everything you need to do the right thing. And you guys are so wise and have received every gift and know everything. So I'm expecting not to see any problems. But here's the problem. I'm seeing problems. So where is it lacking? Well, we know it can't be God who's lacking because God is trustworthy. But I'm so confused. I'm so confused. So if you guys, if you Corinthians can help me understand. Because you're full of the Holy Spirit (laughs) and you're already resurrected and you're sanctified. You're so knowledgeable and so wise in scripture. I don't get the disconnect. Let's see if we can work this out and figure out what's going on. Now I exhort you, brethren. Aha. Now we get down to business. Once you start exhorting, it's bad. By now, in the church in Roman Corinth, they're all sinking under their desk in their chair, (laughs) hoping that the conversation will end. And he's like, well, I think now I'm going to actually switch gears and start to explain what this exhortation is all about. Just don't make eye contact. Keep your eyes down. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, it's important here. Paul is not saying, I'm going to give you a creed and you all have to recite it. That is not what he is saying. There's no creed to give. We already know the rule and he will talk about it shortly. It is the teaching that contains the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you embrace this teaching... What is there to argue about? He's saying that there be no dissensions, not the way a philosopher king says this is what you should believe so that you can be a good Roman or a good Greek or a good whatever. He's saying it the way a father who is sitting on his rear end at the end of a long week 
reading the news and trying to relax to get in the frame of mind to take care of his family over the short weekend we have in the U.S. Trying to regather his thoughts and get some peace of mind. And then his kids are bickering. The father in that situation, or the mother, doesn't go to try to figure out the perspective of the kids and what they're... You don't say that. You tell the kids, I don't want to hear it. But Pop, there's no argument. I am tired and I am frustrated. And I am exerting all my willpower to honor the gospel and not take out my frustrations on you. So please sit down and keep quiet. No thinking needed. Just control yourself and stop fighting. That is the spirit of 1 Corinthians. That is the spirit. He's speaking as a father saying, just stop your bickering. The fruits of the flesh in Galatians are divisions. So when he says they're divisions, it means you are thinking fleshly and not spiritually. Correct. And so this division for Paul, the fact that it comes right off the bat in Galatians and right off the bat in 1 Corinthians, you know this is important. And we know why this is important, because churches live off divisions. We are this and not that. How are we going to get more members? Where are we going to get them from? Well, we're going to take them from being that into being one of ours. We live off the divisions. If it weren't for the divisions, what would we do? If there were no divisions, ISIS wouldn't know who to fight, and neither would the U.S. We have to know who we're against if we're going to be somebody. And Paul is saying, I don't want to see divisions, because this is the root of all your problems. You are incomplete because of this. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, Father Paul Tarazi ingeniously points out that there is a syntactical structure to the layout of these names. You have Paul and Christ the classic pairing that you find in Acts, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? That's the framework you have set up, Jesus and Paul, on the outside of this syntactical structure. And then sandwiched in the middle, you have Apollos, the paterfamilias, representing the Greeks and the Romans, the Gentiles. And you have Cephas, Peter, representing the Jews. And in this one statement in verse 12, Paul is showing you in the structure of the sentence that the Jews and the Romans, the Gentiles and the Jews, because they're bickering with each other, are trying to draw a wedge between Paul and Christ. They're drawing a wedge in the church. They're dividing the community. It's a very powerful observation. And it speaks to what you're saying about how people naturally want to divide. But you should be scandalized seeing that Greek identity and Greek philosophy and Roman identity and Jewish identity and Jewish religiosity are drawing a wedge in the church. What the heck's going on? Yeah, along those lines, the fact that Apollos is a Greek name and Cephas is an Aramaic name goes along those lines. Really underscores the point. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. And I always, when I hear these verses, I think of this beautiful legend of Thecla, who kept asking Paul to be baptized, and he wouldn't allow her to be baptized. 
and ultimately her baptism was in the arena where they tried to kill her and they didn't succeed. Eventually she died in another setting. But it's this point that Paul is not interested in ideological baptism. He's not interested in ritual baptism. He's interested in functional baptism. This is the meaning of Thecla's story. She was baptized by her deeds, by her obedience to Paul's teaching, which put her in the baptismal font of the arena. I've had problematic conversations with people around this, talking to catechumens who are very excited about becoming part of the church. And I say, if you're a catechumen, you're the best position possible. You can leave anytime you want, and we can't say anything. And if you die, you're fine. That's considered your baptism. What are you worried about? But I want to be part of... No, it's not about being a part of. It's about doing the right thing. So just live faithfully to what's been given to you, and that's enough. Do you accept Ezekiel? Because once you accept that God created you, you are one of his children. This is what people need to understand. It's important for those outside to understand it and for those inside to understand it. Because until you get this through your head that it is God who created the universe, not you, you're in the very unpleasant position of claiming indirectly that it is you who created the world and not God. And that is no joke. If you can say this person is in and this person is out, or I belong, or I don't belong, or I want to belong. All of this language is a rejection of God as your father and the God of all gods. The one thing that I really respect of St. Constantine is the fact that he put off baptism until his deathbed because he knew he could not live correctly in his life to be a true Christian because he had to be the ruler. And he was someone who actually understood the message very well, that I shouldn't be baptized because if I were baptized now, I would only betray it anyway. I can't make light of baptism that way. The fact that he would take it so seriously is impressive to me. The early Christians took it very seriously. I remember our Professor Erickson, our dear Professor Erickson, talking in class about conflict and struggle in the early church over when to get baptized because Christians really were afraid of sinning after they were baptized. You can argue, and I would argue passionately, that that's a misunderstanding of Scripture, but you can't not respect the seriousness of the argument. They took it seriously. It was no joke for them. And I think that's the point here. Paul is really concerned because he doesn't want anyone to cheapen the meaning of baptism by making it into an ideological or an identity-based gesture. And that's what they've done. That's what the Corinthians have done. Exactly. Christ is not an identity. Christ is a non-identity. And God forbid you make Paul an identity. It's a forsaking of baptism if you do so. That's a difficult pill for people to swallow because when you go listen in the churches and they talk about baptism, all they talk about is identity, identity, identity in your denomination, identity in Christ. But this is incorrect. It's not scriptural. There is no identity. The only identity is the non-identity. This is a bitter pill for modern Christians because when they talk, they're talking about themselves. Either their personal relationship with God, which makes them a deity, or they're talking about how they're in the right group, which makes their group the deity. Either way, it's just another form of neo-paganism. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any 
other. Now the name Stephanos is a functional name. We know that Stephen was the proto-martyr, which is a functional character whom Paul is comfortable claiming to have baptized. Now what's interesting is that the functional character of Stephanos is the character who was martyred while Paul held the cloaks of the one who stoned him. Now, you're going to say, Father Mark, it can't be the same, Stephen. How could Paul baptize one and blah, blah, blah? Well, this is literature. He says he baptized the household of Stephanus. Wouldn't that be an interesting irony? Yes. You have to hear it as literature. This is functionally Stephen the proto-martyr. And Paul is telling you it's safe to baptize his household because there's no ego left because they were martyred. This is where the legend of Thecla emerges in this teaching. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. So don't run around dropping my name saying I am of Paul. If I did, I don't even remember I did. So it's no point in dropping my name. Right, because you don't matter. For Christ did not send me to baptize. I want Every parish council and every church in North America, when they sit down to talk about church growth, to read verse 17 of 1 Corinthians. Christ did not send me, Paul, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And this is really important with respect to the vanity that American Christians call their evangelization programs. It's vanity. It's self-serving identity nonsense. Because what Paul is saying here, I didn't come to claim you for my group. That's not why God sent me. That is not the will of God. I didn't come to make you into anything. I came to share wisdom not clever speech, and that's where he starts to allude to his disdain for Greek wisdom and philosophy and Hellenism, but so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That is why I'm here. I'm here so that the very thing that Jesus died for, which is brotherhood and fellowship, would not be thrown away in the name of Jesus Christ. Preaching is sharing wisdom. That's what evangelization is. It's sharing wisdom. And if it's true universal wisdom, you're not demanding anything of the addressee except to consider applying this wisdom in their life, which does not refer to the preacher or the preacher's community. Because if it's universal wisdom, why does it have to belong to one group? This dynamites the whole matrix. The cross of Christ is all about self-sacrifice on behalf of the other according to the will of God. How do you package that nicely? Okay, you're going to have to die. No doctor even wants to say that, even though it's his job to. You can pretty it up, but you're not going to make it look good. Because cleverness of speech makes people feel good. It makes people drawn to the idea. It makes people feel good and motivates them to hear you and want to listen more. The cross of Christ is difficult to look at. It's ugly, it's unpleasant, and it negates everything that you stand for and that you are. So cleverness of speech and the cross of Christ are incompatible. Oh, and by the way, I know you guys are very clever. Sorry about that. I'm here to talk about the cross. I'm here to dynamite your cleverness. I'm here to dynamite this argument that, well, we have this teaching 
that teaches us that we should sacrifice everything for the sake of the other and nothing, not even our group or our identity or our clan or our religion or our beliefs should get in the way. And once you understand this, then you realize that we have the right beliefs and you'll join our group. How thoughtful. (laughs) What the heck does that mean? Exactly. Except intellectual laziness. The sad thing is, is that it's deeper than intellectual laziness. Because the person who talks this way is being completely rational. And that's the heart of the problem. It's completely rational as long as the survival of the human being is the basic assumption. But if the cross is the basic assumption, you're on thin ice. Very thin ice. Thank you very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.